Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, if you're visiting us today, uh, we are working our way through the Apostles' Creed, and we are doing this for many reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is if you're like me, I, I said the Apostles' Creed probably almost every Sunday growing up, but was not really sure of the depth of the creed that I was professing. So our hope is to provide depth uh, to this creed that is hundreds of years old. And so I want to ask you to recite it with me once again. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to your word today to understand this creed, Lord, we come to a part of the creed that is confusing, a part of the creed that maybe is the most provocative among scholars, most debated, most discussed. And so, Lord, pray that you would help us to understand what you have revealed to us and help us not to go beyond what you have revealed to us, Lord, and help us to celebrate the truths that we are talking about today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the early days of Jacobswell Church, uh, I remember going to a family's house to do a membership interview with a young man. And we were walking through his story and everything was very good. Um, And then we got to the first membership question. And the first membership question starts like this. It says, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? And so we asked this young man, do you consider yourself to be a sinner? And he says, yes. And we say, do you justly deserve God's displeasure? And he says, yes, I justly deserve God's displeasure. And we say, okay, what does God's displeasure look like? He says, well, God's displeasure looks like discipline and punishment and stuff like that. Okay, well, what does does God's displeasure look like? look like after someone dies. 
And he's struggling and wrestling with it. And the parents are there saying, he knows the answer to this. I'm not sure why he's not saying anything. He's like, well, it's the place where they go where there's eternal punishment. That's, that's what God's displeasure looks like. And we're like, okay, well, what, what's that place called? And, and after several minutes of awkward discomfort, he finally says, Yale. <laughs> and I looked at the parents and we start laughing. And they said, well... He's not allowed to say hell. And so he said the closest thing he could think of, Yale, which I'm sure all the Stanford graduates probably appreciate greatly. You know, hell is a topic that makes people feel very uncomfortable. It's a topic that we don't like talking about or thinking about, including me. But like mosquitoes or taxes or the Chicago Bears, just because we don't like talking about it or thinking about it does not mean it doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't discuss it. And so this week, we're covering the part of the creed that says Jesus descended to the dead. Now, older vision versions that you may be familiar with say Jesus descended into hell. To be honest with you, when we decided to preach through the Apostles' Creed this summer, this was the section that was most intimidating for me. And I was secretly hoping and praying that I would be on vacation when we got to this part. <laughs> there is a lot of confusion about this statement and a lot of confusion about hell in general. And so I need a long runway this morning in the introduction to help provide some clarification before we get into today's text. Now, a couple interesting historical notes about this is this part of the Apostles' Creed did not appear in the Apostles' Creed until the fourth century. It was added later. My guess is it was added to confront some heresy of the time. That's actually why most of the creed was written. You can actually go line by line and pick out the different heresies that it was attacking. But another interesting thing is that John Calvin, who was a scholar during the Reformation, a theologian who many of us appreciate, actually reordered the creed. And he put it this way. He said, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and then hear this, descended into hell, died, and was buried. And the reason why Calvin did this was because Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Because on the cross, Christ took on all of our sin, paid for it in full, and said, it is finished. And while I appreciate what Calvin says, I think the order of the creed that we have today is right, and I will share with you why. But these are some of the questions we face today. You know, where was Jesus on Saturday? Between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, where was Jesus? Did Jesus descend into hell? Where do, where do we go when we die? Do we go to hell? Do we go to heaven or do we go to some hangout? Where do we go when we die? And so this is what we're going to be covering today. If you would, please open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 41. It is page 910 in the Red Bible, 801 in the large print Blue Bible. The passage that we're looking at today is the second half of the very first sermon preached to the New Testament church. 
It happens just after Pentecost. And so the first half of this sermon, Peter is explaining to them what's happening at Pentecost, that what is happening is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said, that in the day of the Lord, that the Spirit would be poured out upon God's people and that they would begin to prophesy. And then he said, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he transitions into what we're going to look at today. And he tells us who that Lord is that we must call upon in order to be saved. And so we're going to read together Acts 2, through 41. And I still have more introduction. And then we'll get into uh, dissecting this a little more. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, before we walk through this passage, we need to study some word history. 
Because over time, sometimes words change meanings and it adds to our confusion greatly. For example, if you look in today's passage in verse 27 and 31, the Greek word translated there, which in the ESV says Hades, is the word Hades. (laughs) But in the King James Version, which was created in 1611, it has the word hell. In the NIV, which was created in 1978, it says the realm of the dead. And then the ESV, again, created in 2001, and the modern King James Version, it just simply says Hades. When you look at the scripture as a whole, the English word hell appears in the NIV translation of the Bible 30, excuse me, 13 times. In the ESV, the word hell appears 14 times. And then listen to this. In the King James Version, it occurs 54 times. Almost four times more than in the NIV, in the ESV. And the reason for this is because the King James Version translators took three different words and used hell as a translation for all of them. And so these are the three words. The first word is sheol. Okay, sheol uh, is zero times in the King James, zero times in NIV, 65 times in the ESV. Then there's the English word Hades, which again appears zero times in the King James Version, eight times in the NIV, nine times in the ESV. And then there's the phrase, the realm of the dead, which does not appear in the King James Version or the ESV, but 28 times in the NIV. So you can see there's a lot of confusion about hell because of the way that words have been used and been changed and have been translated. And so I want to share with you some definitions. You'll see in your bulletin there's two two lines at the top that are underlined. This is so you can fill in some of the definitions. And what I get here, most of it, just so you know, is from J.I. Packer and Al Mohler, so people that are smarter than me, so you can trust in it a little bit more. First, You have Hades, which is in the Greek New Testament, and Sheol, which is in the Hebrew Old Testament. And the definition of that simply is the temporary realm of the dead. That's why the NIV talks about the realm of the dead, because it's translating this for us. Now, the Bible talks about this realm of the dead, Hades, Sheol, having two realms to it to spheres to it. One of the spheres is a place of torment, a place of misery, and it's often called, uh, it's often called the pit in, throughout Scripture. The other place is a place of bliss, and it's often called Abraham's bosom. And so Al Bowler said regarding this, he says, Luke 16, 19 through 31, he says, speaks of the rich man who was in torment in Hades, while Lazarus also in Hades, was comforted in Abraham's bosom, a most honored place. Hades, the realm of the dead, contains both a place of torment and a place of great blessing consistent with the entire body of Scripture. Now, to be clear, Hades is not purgatory. Purgatory is a is not found in scripture anywhere, but purgatory is a place that has been created by the imaginations of men to give people a second chance after they die, uh, which does not exist biblically. But, but, but what it says is basically that you can work out your salvation, that, that, you can, that you can earn your salvation through purgatory, through punishment, or, or if you're living, you can, you can pay to get someone out of purgatory. And the problem with that is, 
well, the Bible, um, but Luke 16 continues <laughs> with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and Jesus makes it crystal clear that you cannot pay off your wages in Sheol. He says this, Luke 16, 26, talking about the rich man, or Jesus talking to the rich man says this, okay, so listen closely. He says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. In other words, we have to figure this thing out before we die. We have to get right with God before we die because once we die, we will be placed to one place or another and there is a chasm that cannot be bridged. Now again, Here's the confusion. Since the 17th century, the term hell has been used to describe not only Hades, Sheol, the realm of the dead, which is all the same place, but it's also been used as a translated term for Gehenna, okay? Gehenna is the place of final and eternal justice and punishment for sin. This is the place those in the pit of Hades will be cast into at the end of time. One scholar says it this way. He says, the term Gehenna was originally used by the ancient Israelites. It was the name of a place outside the walls of Jerusalem, a place where people sacrificed children and burnt their bodies to appease the pagan Canaanite god Molech. In Leviticus 18.20, God expressed his hatred of the false god Molech and deemed the place unclean. It's a valley, okay? Gehenna was eventually used as a landfill by the inhabitants of Jerusalem where people took their trash to be burned. The smell of burning sewage, flesh, maggots, and garbage wreaked absolute havoc on the inhabitants of Jerusalem causing documented medical problems like nausea and breathing difficulty. Clearly, the place was unpleasant, frightening even. And thus, it is no surprise that Gehenna was used and still is today as a metaphor for the final place of punishment for the wicked. And so just to be clear, the Bible does not tell us that Jesus went to Gehenna. That is yet to come. But rather, on that Saturday between Good Friday and Sunday, Jesus went to Sheol, to Hades, to the realm of the dead, most specifically to Abraham's bosom. And so today through Acts 2, we want to look and further understand the connection between Jesus' death, descending into the dead, and his resurrection. All right, so I have like, probably an hour's worth of material that I have to fit in about 15 minutes. So let's see how we can do. First, Jesus was put to death. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Peter is starting by identifying Jesus and he's telling us that Jesus is a man. He's not a myth. He's not a ghost. He's not a legend. He was a real man. And that he was attested to or accredited 
by God. Now, how did God do this? God does this through miracles that Jesus does. If you remember in Luke's gospel, and Luke is the prequel to Acts, written by the same author, John the Baptist in prison sends two of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the Christ, the Messiah that is to come? And Jesus doesn't say anything. Instead, what Jesus does is Jesus starts healing people. He starts doing miraculous things, and then he sends him back and says, hey, go tell John what you saw, and let him determine if I am the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And the reason why he does this is because any joker with a few followers can say, yep, I'm the Christ, yep, I'm the Messiah. But how many people can actually do the works of the Christ, the works of the promised one, the, work, the works of the Messiah? You see, in Isaiah chapter 35, it prophesies about when the Lord will come. And it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the deaf unstopped, and the mute sing for joy. And so Jesus is authenticated through his works that he is the promised Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. And, and, and here... Peter even points out, he said, he doesn't say like, you know, this, you know, some, my friend's grandma saw this, right? Like he says, it happened in your midst. You know about it. Verse 23, this Jesus, the one attested to by God himself, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In this passage, we see again, proclaimed together, God's complete sovereignty and man's complete responsibility in the most tragic act of human history. We see God's sovereignty here because it says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge or foreloving of God. And yet we also see man's responsibility in this because he says you crucified and killed Jesus. Now what's interesting about this is that Peter is preaching to a crowd of at least 3,000 people, at least, maybe more. And we know this by the end of the passage where 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and are baptized. Maybe there's 12,000, maybe there's 15,000, who knows. But he's preaching to thousands and thousands upon people because during, uh, during uh, the Passover and Pentecost, people would surge into Jerusalem and the, and the population would grow. And so he's preaching to thousands of people, Okay. Now, it is, it, is, it is, you can almost bank on the fact that all of these people were not on the Sanhedrin that said, we must put Jesus to death. Uh, you can count that not all of these people were in the crowd crying out to Pilate, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And yet here they are, these people, and Peter says to them, he has audacity to say to them, you crucified Jesus, you put him to death. They probably say, man, I was in Galilee, right? How can you say I put Jesus to death? Well, the reason Peter can say that they put Jesus to death is the same reason that I can say you put Jesus to death. Isaiah 53 says of the Savior to come, the Messiah, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
skipping, skipping, cutting, snipping. <laughs> we put Jesus to death because he took not only, he took on him our sin. He took on him our punishment. And so we are the ones who nailed him to the cross through Roman guards. But it was our sin that put him to death. And so like the Jewish audience of Peter's sermons, we must recognize that we put Jesus to death according to the divine plan of God through the hands of Roman soldiers. Jesus was put to death by you and me. Secondly, Jesus descended into death. Or as the ESV puts it, Hades, the NIV, realm of the dead, or King James Version, hell. Verse 25 says, For David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Again, not Gehenna, Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. That word corruption is very important because the word corruption means decay, okay? Verse 28, you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, <laughs> and his tomb is with us to this day. So I know Peter's argument may be a little confusing to our modern ears, but what Peter does is Peter quotes Psalm 16, which is written by King David. And Peter points out there's a big problem with Psalm 16 if David was simply writing that talking about himself. Verse 27, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Again, that's decay. See, the problem is, is that David did die, that David did bury, that David did decay, that his tomb is still there, that you can still go and excavate it and see his bones. And so this psalm could not simply be talking about David. It must be taken messianically about the son of David that is to come, that Jesus would come, that Jesus would go down to Hades, that he would go to Sheol, but that his body would not seek decay. It would not see corruption because he would be raised from the dead. Now, what was Jesus doing in the realm of the dead? What was Jesus doing when he descended into the dead? What was Jesus doing in Abraham's bosom? Well, when we look at the scriptures, we have to be careful because they don't say a whole lot. Um, I'll take you, I'll, I'll give you kind of what I what I took from the scriptures. The first thing we know that Jesus was doing on that Saturday was turning Abraham's bosom into absolute paradise. And the reason that we know this is because if you remember to the repentant thief on the cross next to Jesus, Jesus says to that thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And what made Abraham's bosom, which was already a great place to be, absolute paradise, was that the one that the, all the Old Testament saints were looking forward to was now with them in their presence. And so he turned it into paradise. Secondly, 1 Peter 3.19 says that Christ went to preach to the spirits in prison, okay, or under guard. There's a lot of debate on what those spirits are. 
But could you imagine what a phenomenal sermon this might have been? Wouldn't you have liked to have been there for that sermon? Wouldn't you like to download it on your podcast and hear the sermon that Jesus preached in Hades? That would be awesome to hear. Maybe someday we will hear it. I imagine that it's much like his, his, uh, his discussion on the road to Emmaus when he took the Old Testament scriptures and showed how he fulfilled all of the prophecies and all of the hope of the people of God through his life and his death and then proclaimed of his resurrection to come. The third thing we know from Hebrews 12, 23 is that Jesus was perfecting the saints of the Old Testament. He was preparing them for heaven, and we'll come back to that later. But the point is, while the Bible does not tell us a lot about what Jesus was up to on that silent Saturday, what we do know is that he did not go down to Hades to play shuffleboard, to drink lemonade, to retire. He went down there for the purpose of redemption. It was not a, it was not a vacation. It was a business trip to continue to bring forth his salvation. And that brings us to our final point. Not only was Jesus put to death for our sin, not only did Jesus descend into death to work redemption, but Jesus conquered death. Verse 24 gives us the first proclamation of this good news. It says, God raised him, Jesus, up loosing the pains of death. And then I love this part. Because it was not possible. <laughs> it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why wasn't it possible for Jesus to be held by death? Well, first off, because the Bible said in Psalm 16 that Jesus would not be held by death, and whatever the Bible says is going to happen. The second reason why death could not hold him is because God is stronger than death. God could bring Jesus back from death. But the third reason is because Death had no legitimate argument to keep Jesus. Jesus was the innocent son of God. He took on our sin, but then he paid for it in full upon the cross. It was completely done, completely paid for. And so hell had no hold on him. Verse 29 continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, this is going back to the previous discussion, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. His bones are still there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Again, I love this. He's not saying, listen, you know, my friend's uncle's neighbor saw Jesus raised from the dead. He says, we're all witnesses. We've all seen it. This means either that they have seen him physically in the flesh raised from the dead, but if they have not seen Jesus in that way, they have seen his resurrection through his spirit in the souls of men. Because Pentecost just happened. This is the sermon right after Pentecost. And they have seen the resurrection Jesus live in the hearts of men. 
Peter continues, verse 33, in talking about Jesus, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, the great patriarch of the faith, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, talking about Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, there are many benefits of belonging to Jesus, of trusting in Jesus. And one of the great benefits is that he will conquer all his enemies. And you know what? All of his enemies are our enemies. Jesus will make a footstool out of his enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He will make a footstool out of his enemies, such as human trafficking or alcoholism or broken families. He will make a footstool out of his enemies, such as starvation, blindness, and war. There is coming a day, friends, when all of his enemies and our enemies will be sequestered into a footstool for our Savior. And then we get to the climax of Peter's sermon, really a summary, what he's trying to prove. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. How can we know with certainty that Jesus, this man who lived 2,000 years ago, is Lord and is Christ? Well, remember, God accredited him with the miracles. And while we were not there to witness it, there were thousands of people who were and wrote it down for our benefit. But the second reason is because the Messiah, the Christ figure that was to come that David was talking about in Psalm 16 was one who was going to raise from the dead, one whose body would not see corruption. And the only one that that could pertain to with both of those is Jesus. And so we can know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Have you ever had buyer's remorse? What should we do? We put the Christ to death. We put the Lord to death. We put the Son of God to death. What should we do? We sent him to Hades, what should we do? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The most precious words to those who have been cut to the heart. The most precious words to someone convinced of their filth and their sin. The most precious words to someone who understands that they have murdered the Son of God are these words. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of of your sins. And then he says this, another promise. It's just promise after promise after promise after promise. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the things that amazes me is after Jesus raised from the dead, he says to his apostles, you know, it's better, it's better for you that I go away. Did that happen before? Anyways, he says to his apostles, 
It's better for you that I go away. And you're sitting there thinking, what is better than being in the presence of Jesus? I mean, isn't that what we're all longing for when we go to heaven, to be in the presence of Jesus? How could anything be better than being in the presence of Jesus? But he says, it's better that I go away for you because I'll send the Holy Spirit. You see, what is better than being in the presence of Jesus is having the presence of Jesus inside of you. And that's what he does as he pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. He pours out upon us blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, 3,000 people that trusted in Christ for their salvation, that enjoyed all the benefits of the Holy Spirit, of the forgiveness of sins, of the hope of eternity by trusting in him. Several years ago, we had a, I'm going to go about five minutes over just to let you know. Um, several years ago, we had some friends give us their, their old car. It was a big red Suburban. We called it Clifford. And uh, they gave it to us because the dealership wasn't going to give them much for it. And uh, we, we received it. We didn't pay anything for it. We were thankful to have it. And as we were driving this thing around, we realized that there are certain benefits that maybe didn't stand out. I mean, we knew there was a sunroof, which was great. But there was also four-wheel drive, which was helpful for a lot of the things that we do. There was heated front seats, which is nice in the middle of winter to, you know, warm you up a little bit. Um, there were all of these great accessories that were a part of this truck. Now, the thing is, is that we did not receive all these gifts individually. It's not like we received the four-wheel drive at one point in time, the sunroof a couple weeks later, and then the heated seats a year later. It was a package deal. And in order to receive all these gifts... All we had to do was receive the one gift of the car. How can you receive the forgiveness of sins? How can you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? How can you receive newness of life? How can you receive resurrection power? How can you receive salvation for all eternity? The answer is simple. You receive all these blessings from Jesus simply by just receiving Jesus. It's a package deal. Have you done that? Have you received this gift from God? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Today could be that day to recognize him as your Lord and Christ. Repent to him for your sin, which nailed him to the cross, and profess your public belief in him by being baptized, as Peter tells here in this passage. Let me end with this. When I became a parent, I learned some new language, um, I learned language that is uh, positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, okay? You may be familiar with those. I wasn't before I was a parent, all right? So, so positive reinforcement is when your child does something they're supposed to do and you reward them, okay? So you say, like, clean your room, and if you clean your room, you'll get a cookie, all right? So you give them a cookie. That's positive reinforcement. There's also negative reinforcement, okay? So negative reinforcement could be, like, you need to clean your room. If you don't clean your room, you're going to go to timeout, right? That would be negative reinforcement. And, and in my opinion, in, in parenting, you need a season of both of those, right? You need those intertwined in your parenting. And when we look at this calling from Peter to repent and to trust in Christ, there is both a positive and a negative reinforcement to it. You know, I've heard Christians say for far too long 
that hell is not appropriate motivation to trust in Jesus. That, that we shouldn't trust in Jesus simply for fire insurance, which is true, but, but, but that, that we should trust simply because we love Jesus. But I'll tell you, I think hell is a perfectly appropriate motivation for trusting in Jesus. It is a negative reinforcement. But that's not the only motivation for trusting in Jesus because there is a positive reinforcement. You see, when Jesus went down to Abraham's bosom, what he did in that time is that he actually unlocked Abraham's bosom. He went down to gather his saints, to bring them up to heaven, to, through, his, through his resurrection and ascension into heaven, to go and be with Jesus. And so what will happen when you die? Well, if you are not in Christ, you will go to the pit of Hades and wait for that day when you will be cast into the lake of fire, Gehenna, for all eternity. But if you trust in Christ for your salvation, this is the positive reinforcement. You get to go to heaven to be with Jesus, bypassing Sheol. Because what we know from the scriptures is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And where is the Lord Jesus? He's in heaven. Sheol is empty. There's nobody there. In Abraham, excuse me, in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is empty. There is nobody there. The only ones in Sheol are those that are in the pot pit waiting for eternal judgment. But if you trust in Christ for your salvation, then your inheritance is heaven with Jesus until he comes and creates a new heavens and a new earth where we'll be established for all eternity in his presence. And so, friends, whether you need positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, or if you're like me and you need both, trust in Jesus. Because Jesus takes on death for us and conquers it on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your divine plan of redemption. And while many of these things are confusing to us, while this may create more questions than we walked in here with, God, we know that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and this is our great hope. Pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, does not know the joy of the resurrection, the joy of the ascension, that you would work in their heart, that you would cut them to the heart, Lord, over their sin, knowing that their sin nailed Christ to the cross, and to repent and know the joy of restoration and love from a heavenly Father who seeks to be with us for all eternity and loves us so much that gave his only son. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We are reminded that he died so that we can live. God, pray that you would nourish us with this hope today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.